But now to the buzzword well-being. Earlier this month, the Victoria government amended the child safety standards to include well-being. This set of standards are used across schools, preschools and daycares in the state. I guess it effectively legislates well-being. Victoria has also committed $200 million to place wellbeing leaders in all public primary schools and low-fee-paying private schools in a bid to arrest the escalating rates of adolescent mental health problems. But how do you define wellbeing? And even more importantly, how's it achieved and what role do teachers have in all of this? And what about their wellbeing? Well, to take us through some of the complexities, I'm pleased to welcome Dr Annie Gowing, who is a senior lecturer and student wellbeing specialisation leader from the University of Melbourne. She's also written an interesting article on the issue for The Conversation. And Helen Agua, who is the principal of Perth College, an Anglican school for girls. She's also recently penned a piece for The Australian on the importance of teacher wellbeing. Well, welcome to you both. Annie, first to you and these new child standards out of Victoria. They seem very much to be a reflection, if you like, of shifting community expectations towards a wellness-focused culture. But I know you've got some concerns about these standards. What are they? Well, they're not about the standards. They're about the fact that well-being has suddenly appeared in them. Um, and I'll, I'll just sort of draw our attention to the second standard, which suddenly is saying child safety and well-being is embedded in organisational leadership, governance and culture. And similarly, in the the Standard 6, we um, find they're talking about um, child safety and wellbeing values in practice. And this is highly problematic because, uh, as I'm sure this uh, discussion will surface, that wellbeing is is difficult to define. And if it's suddenly in a piece of legislation, as it is in these standards, what does that then require schools to do? Mm. And that's the problem. Yeah, well, that's the problem. Difficult to to define, but impossible, Annie. I mean, the World Health Organisation speaks about health as being more than merely the absence of illness. Its definition includes holistic well-being across numerous domains, um, but stops short, really, of nominating a single definition, doesn't it? You've just there acknowledged it's complex, it's multifaceted. Some researchers have even Mm. characterised it as a wicked problem. So where, Mm. where can we begin to start in defining it? I think, um, look, I'm going to, given um, we're talking about the Victorian uh, child safe standards, I'm actually going to um, give you the definition that the Victorian Department of Education uses. And I think that's important because we need to look at how um, our education departments and more broadly um, our policy frameworks are defining this. And so here in Victoria, it's defined as the development of the capabilities to thrive, contribute and respond positively to challenges and opportunities of life. Now, that's one of thousands of definitions, but it's the one that frames up how educators in uh, Victoria um, uh, led to understand this this concept. It's not, I, I think there's problems with that definition um, because challenges and opportunities are not equally distributed and it frames wellbeing as very much an individual state. 
And I think that's um, that's that's not correct. I favour um, more recent ecological understandings of well-being, as it as, as it's something that is deeply embedded within um, young people's families, within their schools, within their communities, their social networks, their neighbourhoods, and so that brings us invites us to see it as something much more fluid and volatile and um, very much shaped by the, the sort of social context um, in which young people live their lives. Mm. Well, Helen, as a principal of Perth College, a private Anglican schools, uh, school for girls, uh, sorry, excuse me, a private Anglican school, um, how do you define wellness? I know that you have wellness programs at your school, but have you struggled with this idea as well and where might you have landed? Look, uh, I agree with Annie. Defining wellbeing is extremely challenging. Um, we have an inside-out program and we've, we've actually created our own, I guess, definition and it's based on the work of Martin Seligman. So we've gone with the PERMA model um, and we look at wellbeing as positive emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning, accomplishment, but we've also added health and, and that covers physical and psychological. So we really are trying to cover as many areas and angles of wellbeing as we possibly can. You mentioned that Inside Out program. Can you tell me a little bit about that? How is it embedded into the, the school uh, curriculum or the school culture? Mm. So Inside Out, we've uh, been working with Inside Out for the better part of uh, 10 years. It's our framework and it runs from pre-kindy to year 12. It, it is a wellbeing and self-leadership framework that we use at the school. Scoped right from the early years where we start with just emotional recognition um, with the littlies um, using kamochis and teddies and then uh, working our way up to other issues like uh, friendship fires, conflict, confidence, resilience, and then right up to year 11 and 12, where we're now doing a bold program, which is based on the work of Brené Brown. So, you know, quite detailed, but been going for 10 years. So a lot of work has really um, been put in and a lot of research. Yeah. So 10 years, I imagine you've had some time to measure the results. What are you seeing as a result of a program like Inside Out? Absolutely. So uh, we use Assessing Wellbeing in Education, so the OR surveys, and we've been tracking it for a number of years. And look, we're never going to get perfection, but what we have seen is um, some pretty good growth in our students when compared to um, you know, national figures and just seeing improvement and growth. And, and that's what we aim for. Um, perfection is not what we're, we're trying to, to get. We actually think that's probably a, a very negative um, message to be putting out there, but growth is fantastic. I know, Helen, at your school, you have a director of wellbeing for the overall school and a head of wellbeing in the junior school. But Annie, if I can ask you about the Victoria model, what do you expect the wellness leaders to be doing in, in the primary schools there in that state? Well, I, I think um, they have a range of um, roles and and that's just one role within a school. The, the Mental Health and Wellbeing Coordinators um, is a pilot program. We have primary welfare officers. We have student wellbeing coordinators in secondary schools. So there are a number of roles that are dedicated this this work. I think any money we can provide to support people in these roles is is well spent. The problem, I think, is how we support people to do that work. 
that's where some of the challenges come. Questions around how they are train, trained into those roles. New mental health and wellbeing coordinator roles have a, have a substantial series of training modules sitting behind that pilot program. But in a lot of other cases, people fall into these roles because they're very talented teachers, they have great capacity to um, establish relationships with young people, and so they... Um, you know, gravitate towards these kind of this kind of work in schools. But then when they're in those roles, we often don't provide them with ongoing training. We don't provide them with ongoing support. People in these roles are privy to all sorts of disclosures about the pain and, and um, distress and trauma that young people experience in their lives. But you did mm. highlight there that often, and we saw this, I think, during the pandemic very much so, that teachers did more than just teach. They kind of def- went into default yeah. mode of looking after from this yes. perspective of, of, of students. But we know that the Australian professional standards for teachers emphasise student wellbeing is important to learning, but they note teachers' main priority is making sure the student learns at their stage of the national curriculum. Mm-hmm. So I guess what is what is more in, important here? I mean, are teachers signing up for something that they're... Are they signing up for something that they're, they're not prepared for, if you like? Look, I, I, I think it's unhelpful to have that sort of binary between teaching and well-being or learning and well-being. I think teachers do well-being work all the time and always have. That um, great teachers um, uh, build relationships with their students. Great teachers understand their students. Great teachers listen to their students. Great teachers are passionate about what they teach. And all of those things contribute to a young person's well-being. Mm. You know, lots of studies have asked young people, what makes a great teacher? What ha- what's happening in your class when you are getting on with the teacher, when your learning's going well, when you're okay with things? And, you know, it's that kind of, it's it's um, it's those little things which uh, um, Bruce Johnson um, named um, some years ago teachers who listen, teachers who are passionate about their teaching, teachers who intervene when they see something problematic happening, teachers who notice, teachers who get to know their students outside the student role. We would see all that as, you know, just part and parcel of teaching work, but it also is wellbeing work. And I think we don't have to suggest that, oh, here's our teaching and now here's a whole set of other things we have to do to address wellbeing. Mm. Yes, there are a whole bunch of other things that sometimes need to happen and that's not done by teachers alone. That's when um, community supports, when family, when when a whole range of other uh, other people step in to do this work collaboratively. But teachers do wellbeing work every day when they're in their classrooms. Well, Helen, let me ask you about your teachers. Is that how how they go about their business? They teach as well as inherently have wellbeing at the back of their mind? Absolutely. I think that the learning and teaching, the wellbeing go hand in hand. Um, And if you have students who are well and teachers who are well, um, that's that's when it works. Um, teachers have been doing well-being forever. It's the reason we come into teaching. You know, it's that deeper meaning of wanting to make a difference to really help students, uh, you know, discover who they are, become confident, become resilient, and in doing that, doing really well in their learning and teaching. Um, but Annie makes a very good point 
about two things, um, the partnerships between families, students and school. I think that that is um, when the magic happens, when you have a community that works together and values wellbeing and definitely the support for teachers because it's becoming more complex. So the commitment to develop teachers and give them those supports is super important for them to feel well and equipped to be able to support their students. Is the magic happening all the time though, Helen? You know, where you've mm-hmm. got the the triumvirate, if you like, between the student, the families and, and the schools? No, I, I don't think so. Um, look, I'm, I'm very privileged. I work in a community where our families are amazing and, and really speak the language with us. But we have to acknowledge that different contexts different socioeconomic pressures for schools and schools are doing absolutely the best they can but there are different challenges for different schools and uh, perfection is uh, just not going to happen. (laughs) Mm. Going to the point of uh, well-being for your teachers, uh, Helen, that Annie spoke to just then, how do you ensure that their wellness is being looked after so the students are also being looked after in that holistic manner? I think the first step, Catherine, is to actually um, have the courage to have the conversation as an organisation. You know, it it really does take courage because once you start having that wellbeing conversation with your staff, you know, there's going to be good and bad and leaders have to be open to having the conversation. Once the conversation starts, then you can start actually working through what do my staff need in this context and what can and can't we do? but you've got to have that first conversation, have that courage. Mm. Well, we know that there's a Monash University survey of uh, just mm. under 2,500 primary and secondary teachers across Australia that revealed almost 60%, 60% were planning to leave the pr- pr- profession. We know it takes five years to train a teacher and they're leaving or that, that amount is leaving just as quickly. Um, so having those discussions key. I, I believe that, Helen, you've got an, an assessing wellbeing tool for your yes. staff. How's that helped you look after them? So this year it's actually been very successful because um, we've really um, pushed the wellbeing of staff. And so the results this year showed us that our staff are 30% less likely. So in terms of comparing the stats, you know, that was quite heartening. They do feel more valued at school, but that doesn't mean we're perfect. You know, there's a lot of work to be done. um, And like I said, it takes courage to really have the conversation Mm. and to see what can be done. So Annie, why do you think we're seeing so many teachers leaving the profession? Is it is it post, just post-COVID or has this been building for a while? I think we have to acknowledge that um, the last couple of years have certainly contributed to yeah, a, a real dip in, in teachers' own wellbeing. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of national urgency. You know, as I speak, we have schools all over the country where um, student and teacher absences are um, at an all-time high because of COVID. And and although a lot of discourse now is around we're post-COVID, we are not post-COVID. And certainly in schools, the impacts of this will be felt for some time. Um, And I think teachers had to carry a huge load over the past couple of years. And why? 
all our magnificent medical staff and and you know support staff of all kinds um, were rightly lauded for their contribution. I, I don't think teachers were recognised as, a, in a sense, emergency workers, mm. but that was the work they were doing. Mm. Um, they were actually not only supporting um, young people; they were supporting families. Um, you know, the, the dynamics in families suddenly in lockdown, certainly in Victoria, for very long periods of time, um, the school became part of the home and the home became part of the school in ways that we've never seen before. And I, I think there has been, um, at the political level, a lack of recognition of the contribution of teachers. And so I'm not at all surprised that the, the morale is very low. And com this is then compounded by the fact that young people are coming back to school. Again, I'm talking in the Victorian context, although it applies um, Australia-wide, uh, that young people are coming back to school having missed sometimes, you know, 18 months, two years of, uh, of on-campus, in-place education. And so I've talked to sort of year seven teachers who are saying they've got year, young people starting year seven who actually um, have... have they missed all of their, the, the sort of, um, the latter part of their primary schooling when a lot of the, um, uh, the social, um, cognitive um, uh, learning occurs. And so they now, um, the impact of that in terms of what is now expected of teachers, um, we are still finding our way with that. And so the work teachers are doing is um, is is hard, it's constant, It's we're in somewhat uncharted territory. And so Helen's point about really having conversations so that we are reaching out to teachers, we're acknowledging what they've, their contribution and we're supporting them to keep contributing um, in, in, uh, so that they can they can sustain um, their their career. Mm. Um, teachers teachers um, are teachers go into teaching because they have such a purpose about wanting to contribute, as Helen said. Mm. And you you ask anyone about their schooling experiences, what they remember. Ninety nine percent of people will say a teacher. Yep, grade four was um, my favourite year, Mister Hurst. There I you remember go. him well. <laughs> you, but... See, you know his name. That's what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it does sound like teachers students and parents will be finding their way for some time mm. yet. But for now, uh, Annie and Helen, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks oh, very much. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And that was Dr Annie Gowing. She's a lecturer and student wellbeing specialisation leader from the University of Melbourne. And Helen Agua is the principal of Perth College, an Anglican school for girls. Some fairly strong comments coming in on the text uh, line. Thank you very much for that. Lisa from Randwick says, wellbeing is always student focused. The poor teachers never get included in being looked after, but have to be everything to students. Thanks for your comments there, Lisa. I mean, it was interesting to hear from Helen there unpack what they're doing at Perth College to look after a teacher well-being there. Uh, someone else has texted in saying teacher well-being is linked to the unsafe workplace and unsustainable workload. We're sick of hearing about ticker box well-being actions that do nothing to address the issues of bullying, harassment and assault of staff by students. Thank you very much for those comments. Please keep them coming in.